0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. If you need a Bible, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you a copy of the scriptures. And Montrell is going to read this morning Jeremiah chapter 12 verses 1 through 17. If you're new to the scriptures, can't find Jeremiah, don't fret. Just simply look in the table of contents in the front of the Bible. You can find the page number for Jeremiah, and then turn to the 12th chapter. We're going to read the entire chapter together this morning. If you're using your phone, just kind of do your clickety clickety. You get it uppity. Got it? Huh?
1: They
0: don't click. click. You can put the clicking sound on, though, if you'd like. (laughs) All right, when you're there, say amen.
1: This is Jeremiah, chapter 12. It reads, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I do complain to you. Yet I would please my my case before you. Why does the wicked of the way prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. The Lord answers, Jeremiah, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how would you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they dwell treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. Have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has come, has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion they have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness they have made it a desolation desolate it mourns to me the whole land is made desolate but no man lays it to heart upon all the bare heights in the desert destroyers have come for the sword of the lord devours from one end to the land to the other no flesh has peace they have sown wheat and have reaped thorns they have Tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again each to his heritage heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word.
0: Preach you this morning on this theme Stand by Me. Let's pray and ask God for His help this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come into Your Word. We thank you for Your Word. Your Word is truth. We ask God that You would speak to us this morning through the power of Your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite lines in the Bible is in the book of Exodus, chapter 2. What's going on there is, if you know anything about Exodus, is in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Israel is in bondage in Egypt. They're enslaved. They're not just enslaved, but the Egyptians are trying to make them extinct. They are trying to kill them, work them to death. Uh, They're forced to make bricks, uh, hard labor. Uh, They have to plot the midwives plotting to just simply save the babies. It's crazy. It's crazy. And at the end of chapter 2, things are all bleak. It doesn't look good at all. And it says the Israelites groaned because of their slavery. It says the Israelites cried out to God. God. My favorite line is this, in chapter 2, verse 25 of Exodus, it reads, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God saw and God knew. Things were all bad, Pharaoh is against us, they're trying to kill us, we are going to die here, God saw and God knew. I want us all this morning to be able to declare with Jeremiah what he says in verse 3. And that is in the midst of his own persecution, in the midst of the, own plot, his, the plot against his own life, he says this, But you, O Lord, know me. You see me. You test my heart to you. There might be people who are against you, rejecting you, persecuting you for standing in His truth and for His truth. What I want you to know this morning is that if you stand with God, God stands with you. If you stand in Christ, and Christ is God's, then God right now is standing by you. But rejection still hurts, doesn't it? it still makes us feel lonely in this world. And while Jeremiah on one hand says God sees and God knows, Jeremiah also asks on the other hand, God why? Why, he says, do the wicked prosper in verse 1? And by the way, for Jeremiah right now, it really literally seems like the wicked are prospering. If you've been tracking with us with this book, you know that Jeremiah has been preaching this message that Jesus Christ, well, that God, and then for us, as I applied it a couple weeks ago, is the only Savior who can truly save. He's been preaching this message of repentance, that your idols are going to do nothing for you. God is your only hope. And as a result, Jeremiah has been rejected. We saw last week that there's a death plot, an assassination conspiracy out for his life. Like things are really bad for Jeremiah. And I'm sure he's looking around, and he's like, man, they actually are still living a pretty good life. And so he asks this question God, why? Do the wicked prosper? The very people who are condemning me. The very people who are rejecting me. The very people who are coming after me because I'm just standing for what you told me. Why are they doing so well in this world? Why do the wicked... Their life is better than mine. They seem to be having more happiness than I do. Like that dude turned away from Christ and he's now out hanging out clubbing at night, and I'm seeing his Instagram, and his life looks a lot better than mine. He has more smiles than I do. Why do the wicked prosper? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, if we're going to understand that, uh, or, or, or ask that question, we need to understand these three sort of, I'm going to call them big God truths that God reveals to Jeremiah here in Jeremiah chapter 12. It's really God's answer. God doesn't just come out and give a straight, well, let me tell you what. He, he, he talks about truth. And he's essentially saying, Jeremiah, if you're going to ask that question, what you need to know are these three big truths. Number one. Number one, you're not alone, Jeremiah. You're not alone. So in verse 7 through 9, it's sort of like a, uh, like a cosmic hashtag, uh, me too hashtag. You know what I'm talking about? God is saying, me too, Jeremiah. I'm oppressed, Jeremiah. I'm the one that is really being oppressed. And by the way, on this note, this isn't in my notes, but on the Me Too hashtag, ladies, one thing that we can recognize is that when you're oppressed, the image of God is being oppressed. Does that make sense? It's really God who's being oppressed uh, w- w- when, when women are uh, objectified, taken advantage of. Anyway, that's a little freebie for you. God is saying, me too. So look at verse 8. He says, my heritage, and I think he's distinguishing this from Jeremiah's, my people, my heritage, are to me like a lion in the forest. She's lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair, the birds of prey? against her all around. What God is saying is, is that Israel has become like a lion to me. Now this is a turn of analogies. Often God is referred to as a lion in the Scriptures. Here God is saying, He's turning the analogy and He's saying they're like a lion trying to destroy me. Trying to consume me. So in rejecting you, Jeremiah, in rejecting the prophet that I sent, they're really rejecting me. They're coming, this plot is against me. Do You see what he's saying there? They're a, lot, or a hyena's lair. Hyenas freaky little animals, aren't they? I don't want to be a, a, in a, a hyena's lair. And I think what he's saying is it's, it's like they're a hyena's lair and the birds are circling uh, trying to get at this carcass that the hyenas have. Like, and, and so then therefore in verse eight, he says, I hate them. God loves you. We never say, God hates you. But God says, I hate them. Let's just be honest with his word. Now, I've got to say this. Hate in the scriptures is different than the way we think of hate today. Today we think of hate as a sinful sort of uh, emotion toward somebody. Uh, A lack of love. Actually, in the scriptures, hate is not necessarily a lack of love. Um, Hate is a disposition toward. It's God is treating... Israel as his enemy because they've turned against him so he has to essentially protect himself which is kind of a weird way to put it for God but you get the analogy and so therefore he has to judge Israel which is a putting off aka a hating does that make sense I think of like the Walking Dead TV show you guys seen that anybody nobody a couple of you want everybody else is just ashamed to admit it zombies. So I think of like, a, let's say a brother who get, turns into a zombie, and now all of a sudden your brother who is your best friend, your ally, is now like your enemy, and you got to put a bullet in his head. That's, kind, that's the picture. He's saying like, you've turned against me. Now the difference is, a zombie has like lost their, their, their mind. That's no longer actually them, right? According to the TV show. The difference is this is actually Israel. Like they've literally changed their mind about God and they're coming after Him. And God now has to treat them as if they are a lion coming at Him, as if they are His enemy. Secondly, He says, there will be judgment. So we see this in verse 9. For example, nine, the latter half of verse 9, He says, go assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour In verse 12, upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come for the sword of the Lord devours from one end to the other. No flesh has peace. That's against Israel. There's also going to be judgment against the nations surrounding Israel who are actually attacking Israel, which is kind of like, wrap your mind around this, God is using the nations, in particular Babylon, as His his weapon, as His mode of destruction in Israel, and then he's going to call Babylon into account for what they did to Israel. Babylon is going to be judged for how they come in and destroy the land, the temple. In verse 17, he says, if any nation will not listen, I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Meaning, just because, Jeremiah, just because you don't see judgment right now doesn't mean that there isn't judgment coming. That's essentially what he's he's saying right now. Just because the wicked, wicked are temporarily prospering, it doesn't mean that there isn't going to be ultimate justice one day. Now, you might stop here and say, okay, I get the eternal side of things. I get that God is going to make every wrong right and there is going to be eternal judgment on the wicked. But I'm still dealing with today. And this is where I want to show you this third big truth, which to me is surprising. A couple times throughout Jeremiah, I'm reading along the passage and I get to something and I'm like, wait, what? What?" And I have to go back and reread it to make sure I read what I just read. His third big truth is basically saying this. God has plans that you don't know about. These plans are plans of showing compassion on the wicked. We see this in the last couple verses of this chapter. First, he says God will have compassion on Israel. Look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbor, neighbors who touch the heritage that I will give My people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will also pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, the house of Judah, I will have compassion on them, and I will bring them again to His heritage and each to His land. What he's saying is, is that even though the divorce has gone out, Even though they've received their eviction notice and they're losing the land because they're covenant breakers. Even even though there is an invasion coming from Babylon, God is saying that I am going to bring restoration. I'm going to get back into Babylon I'm going to pull you out of Babylon. And I'm going to redeem you. And I'm going to restore you. And I'm gonna bring you back to the land. I'm giving you, I I promise that I'm gonna give you another invitation to come home. This is temporary, this isn't for this is a this is a temporal judgment that's coming on Israel, but God is faithful to his promises, which means he will not forever put Israel off but he is going to show compassion on them and there's going to be a remarriage, a new covenant. Now this is good news for those of us who have been wanderers. God is faithful to his promises. He's a promise-keeping God. And if God says that I've got you in my hand and no man's going to pluck you out, That means God is going to get you home. And you say, well, I could pluck myself out. True. We can kind of lose our faith for a little while. But God made a promise to his people. And he is not going to lose you. Therefore, you really can't pluck yourself out. Because he's going to bring you, he's going to pluck you out from whatever club you're in, and he's going to bring you home. He's going to keep you. He's going to show compassion on Israel. This is his word to Jeremiah. He's also, not only that, but he's going to show compassion to, to the nations. Look at verse 16. He says, and it shall come to pass that if they, now he's talking about the nations here, will diligently learn the ways of My people to swear by My name, as the Lord lives, even as they taught My people to swear by Baal, they shall be built up in the midst of My people. This is important. We see here, first, the importance of purity within Israel. Who is it that teaches the nations who God is? It's Israel, right? Israel, has right now, they've failed in their duty. But God is saying that there's going to come a time where I'm going to grow Israel in such a way that they're going to teach the nations what it looks like to live in faithfulness before Me. And this is a promise that goes out that connects all the way back to Abraham that God is going to bless all the nations. Meaning it was never just about Israel. Well, maybe it is. The the nations will be grafted into Israel, and we now are true Israel. The whole globe. Everybody who confesses the Lord Jesus Christ is part of true Israel. And Israel had always been a type, a picture of what is to come in the church. This matters to us. This is very personal because I don't know about you, but I would have been part of the nations outside of Christ, outside of the covenant, outside of the hope, yet God made a promise to save even the nations. That's, that's some significant compassion right there, Amen? And this applies to you personally. So now, God has brought you into His family. What is now your call? What's your job description? Well, it is to be salt and light. It is to represent to the world who God is. And He says here, even though nations, even though you taught them about Baal, you taught Israel how to worship Baal, there's going to come a day where they teach you how to worship God. And that applies to you, doesn't it? Even though you taught Joel how to worship the God of pride, there's going to come a day where Joel is going to teach you how to worship the true God who saves. Even though you taught fill your own name in the blank, even though you taught this part, Paul, Jody, Montrell, Deborah, Jess. Even though you taught, put your name in the blank, how to worship the gods of sex, money, power, prestige, pleasure, all the Ps. There's going to come a day when they are going to teach you something about God. This means that God is going to grow us. Not only is He going to keep us, He's going to grow us so that we might be salt and light for the nations, for those who are outside of Christ. Now, how does this get back to the original question? The original question was, why do the wicked prosper? What God, I believe, is saying here is this. The, main, the primary reason that the wicked are currently prospering is because I am a patient God and I've got plans to show compassion that you know nothing about. And let's just turn this for a moment. Let's remember that one time we were the wicked who were prospering. We were the ones who rejected the truth we were the ones who hated the counsel that was brought to us by God's faithful. We were the ones who were outside. We were the ones who somebody at some point said, God, why do you let him prosper? Answer, it's because God has plans that you don't know about. Hey, praise God for the fact that He has patience. Patience. Does the fact that God has patience make you happy? Like this truth ought to make somebody shout. He's a patient God. He was patient with me. He was patient with you. And so now as people reject us, what God wants us to recognize is that He just might be patient with them as well for the same purposes that He was patient with you, so that He might show compassion on them and might bring them to His his own home and restore them. Guys, pray for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Now, this still at the same time, I recognize this doesn't make it necessarily easier when we're rejected. It still hurts. When we're persecuted, we still feel lonely. And so I want to just kind of spend a few minutes as we close here. Looking at, going back to verse 3, and looking at a, a subtle truth that we find here in this text, a truth that should encourage us. Verse 3, he says, But you, Lord, you know me. You, Lord, you see me. Meaning, they don't know me. They don't see me. They're not with me. But what Jeremiah is declaring is God, but you are. You do know me. You do see me. And I think Jeremiah was actually cool with the fact that he was rejected by the world but accepted in heaven. I think he was actually resolved with the reality that he's been called to a difficult ministry, but God is standing by His side. God stands by you. That's the truth I want you to walk away with. If you're standing in Christ, then God stands with you. When? When does God stand with you? Well, first, God stands with you when those who profess His name do not. That's what I see in the text right here. Let me say that again. God stands with you when those who profess His name do not stand with you. Let me illustrate it this way. uh, This past fall I went to a Ravens game with David Scott. Now, in all honesty, I'm a hometown fan. I root, except for the Cavs, I root for the home team. Thankfully, Baltimore doesn't have an NBA team. I might have to give up the Cavs if we ever do, just because I'm a hometown kind of guy, and this is my home now. And so I root for the Ravens. All that to say, if I moved to D.C., I probably would root for the Redskins. All right, go ahead and kill me right now. Crucify me. Persecute me. God stands with me. But I, I, I enjoy the Ravens because I live here. But I'm not like a die-hard Ravens fan. I could probably name three people on the team. Now, so I, but I love going to the games. I've only been to two now. So I went to a Ravens game with David Scott. Now, David Scott, this guy is a Ravens fan. All right, don't let his, don't let his button-up suit kind of conservative, quiet presence fool you. When he gets into the Ravens' stadium, he loses his mind, <laughs> alright, he's banging on the seats, he's shouting, and by the way, he sits in like the rowdy section, everybody's doing this, so I'm there at the Ravens' game, and I tip, I'm, a, I'm pretty chill when I watch games, I'm just like, you know, you know, eat my peanuts. But I I know how to also fit into the crowd. So I'm banging on the seat and I'm yelling. I throw a chair at the ref. I learn how to fit in. I learn how to shout. I learn how to say, come on, ref! Because that's what everybody around me is doing. (laughs) Now check this out. A lot of people learn how to fit in. A lot of people learn how to shout. A lot of people learn the ways and the culture of the church. Yet their heart is really far from the Lord. They just know how to fit in. And you can't tell them apart from a true fan. They're just fitting in. And so we've got people here who are fitting in. They get the culture of Israel. They know how to speak in such a way that makes them sound pretty religious. But these people, their heart is far from God. Today, not not even just individuals, but entire churches who know how to fit in. Entire churches which look like churches. They got buildings, cathedrals sometimes, steeples, amazing bands, they use the Bible, they speak in such a way that makes you, makes, uh, it sounds pretty legit. But the reality is, their heart is not actually with God. They're just simply fitting into the culture. Look at Jeremiah, chapter 12, verse 2. This is the problem in Israel. The second part of verse 2, he says, You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. You're near in their mouth, but you are far from their heart. Family, he is near to your mouth, but he is far from your heart. Now this should humble us This should cause us to look internally and ask ourselves, do do my words really line up with my heart? Like, do I talk about Jesus, or am am I really willing to follow Jesus? To devote my life to Jesus? Do my actions line up with what I claim to believe and the truth of, of Scripture. This should humble us, and it should also cause us to recognize that this isn't a new problem. Like it's, it's easy in some sense to be rejected by the world. It stings even more so when professing Christians reject you for standing on the truth, which is what Jeremiah is dealing with. Some years ago, I remember talking about a certain Bible doctrine. And I don't want to present, look, I'm, I'm a scumbag, all right? I'm a sinner saved by grace. So I don't want to present as like just some innocent. But all I was doing was just reading the Word, all right? And this dude got so mad at me. This was in a small group Bible study. And he stood up and he had his fist clenched. I thought, we're going we're gonna to go at it right now in, in small group. I was like, I'm just reading the Word. (laughs) It stings when our friends become our enemies. Not in the sense that we would actually call them an enemy, but they're acting toward us as if they are an enemy. As they stand opposed to the truth of of God's, God's Word. Look at verse 10. He says many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. This would be, uh, uh, honestly, an early reference to pastors. I don't think this was an office in Israel, or it wasn't an office in Israel. But I think they recognized that there were shepherds in Israel, there were pastors in Israel, and what he's saying is, is that these pastors they've destroyed everything. They haven't discipled you. They haven't spoken truth. And there's nothing... Actually, desolate is a word that he uses. In verse 11, coming out of verse 10, he says, they've made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate. Try to read that verse ten times fast. What's the theme of that verse? It's desolate. They've emptied the power that could be theirs because they have turned from the Lord. This is why it's important for us to be united theologically as a church. This is why it's important for us to stand on the truth of His Scriptures. Now, you might not be a Christian, and you might say, you know, I've, I've heard that the church is filled with hypocrites. That can be true. But it doesn't have to be. We can actually encourage one another to confess our sins, to trust in the Lord, to live a life that is different from what Jeremiah is experiencing here as he's rejected by those who profess the name of the Lord. Secondly, just really quickly, we also see that God stands with us when those who reject His name do not. And that's sort of a simple truth. But let's not make it too simple in that what if God didn't? What if when people who rejected the name of God rejected us, persecute us, stand against us, and then as a result, God Himself kind of finds His own distance. Oh, how good it is to know that we can, in fact, be rejected by the world, yet accepted by God. At our community group this last week, we, I threw out the question of, uh, uh, has there ever been a time where you have been rejected by the world? Because, in particular, because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you stand firm on the truth of of the Word. And I was really surprised at how many experiences there were. People who were rejected. Not invited to certain things. Not invited back. Not a part of certain social clubs and gatherings. Ostracized in business or even in the music industry. It's funny how we live in a world which celebrates tolerance. Yet when we actually talk about it among ourselves, we realize like they don't really tolerate us.. <laughs> I had a friend once who asked me she said, uh, "She was it?" rejecting the Lord, atheist. and She said, if I don't receive Jesus, am I going to hell? And with you know, as much care and compassion, I said, yeah, you are. And she said, she said that's intolerant of you. I said, you can't... Like, I just believe what the Bible says. It's not me. <laughs> like, you can't fault me for believing what the Bible says. But listen, when the world rejects you, if you're in Christ, God stands with you. Now, if you're out there trying to get the world to reject you, just listen to my sermon last week. I talked about that. Don't do that. that's dumb. Don't be a jerk. Don't hold up signs, alright? You know what I'm talking about. I think. The world rejects us. Our friends reject us. I think of Psalm 55, where the psalmist, he's, he's mourning over the fact that he's rejected not just by the world, but by his friend. He says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. But it is you, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. What hurts the psalmist is that he was rejected not just by the world, but by those who profess God. By those who are his friends, who have turned against him Jesus himself was rejected by the world, and he was rejected by his friends. In that moment of great need, who was it that turned on him? Who was it that denied him? Who was it that turned him over to the authorities? It was those who were closest to him. It was his friends. But we know that in that moment, we are standing with Christ. Therefore, Christ is standing with us. As we close, let me go back to verse 3. Draw your attention back to this verse one last time. As Jeremiah is facing the rejection of all kinds of people, those who are in his village, those who are part of his family, those those, those who profess to be worshipers of Yahweh. As also in verse 5, we see that things are getting worse. You can't handle this. What are you gonna do when Babylon comes? He's got rejection all around him. Where he finds comfort is in these words, But you, O Lord, know me, and you see me. You know me, and you see me. When Pharaoh is coming at me and trying to kill me, when all of Egypt is against me, God, you know me, and you see me. When Jeremiah preaches this message of hope and life in God and judgment outside of Him, and he is rejected for standing with the Lord, God, You know me. You see me. When all the world turns against Him and He feels like He's got nothing left, what is His hope? You know me. And You see me. This this text actually reminded me of another text in the New Testament. And that's in 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 through 18. Here we see Paul, as he's closing out this letter to his friend, a young pastor, Timothy, Paul talks about rejection. He recognizes the fact that there are going to be a number of times in your life where you stand for truth and you feel alone. You feel rejected. What do you do? Paul was rejected. This was, I I think, in 2 Timothy, he's referring to a time when he was in Rome. And he was arrested, he was going to stand before the council. And he needed some witnesses. He needed some people to show up and to say, no, he's, he's alright. He's not doing any damage. Guys, nobody showed up. Not those he brought from Judea. Not those he brought from Asia. None of his friends. Nobody showed up. He was standing alone. Rejected, not just by Nero, but rejected by his own. Why? Because of danger. I don't know if I want to appear with him because if it goes bad for Paul, it's going to go bad for me. So I'm just going to kind of stay out of this one. Turn to 2 Timothy if you would. I want you to see this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. Just briefly, he says this. He says, in that moment, everybody deserted me. No one supported me. Think about that. Truth. Everybody deserted you. Standing alone on the truth of God's Word. And nobody supported you. And I love verse 17. But the Lord stood by my side. Let's declare that together, church. Lift up your voice. Declare that with me. But the Lord stood by my side. One more time. But the Lord stood by my side. And with that, He had power to continue His Gospel ministry. If you are standing with Jesus, Jesus is standing by you. When you speak the truth and you're rejected for it, the Lord stands with you. When, when someone tempts you to sin and all of a sudden your friend is now your enemy, the Lord stands with you. If the world tries to harm you, even when your closest friends turn against you and are silent when you need them to speak, the Lord stands with you. And the storms of life are raging. Raging the Lord stands with you. In the midst of all tribulation, the Lord stands with you. Oh, what about my faults and failures? Yeah, in the midst of your faults and your own failures, the Lord stands with you. In the midst of persecution, the Lord stands with you. When you grow old and feeble and it's hard to live and you're nearing death, In that moment, the Lord stands with you. He stands by you, church. If you're in Christ, and Christ is God's, the Lord stands by you. You're hurting. You want those around you to love Jesus in the way that you love Jesus. But they've rejected Him, and as a result, they've rejected you. Know these big truths. Know these big truths. You're not alone. God is a God of justice. And God has plans of compassion that you don't know about. So right now, just trust the Lord. Take heart in His sovereignty, in His plans, and know that He sees you. And know that He knows you. And know that He is standing with you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the faithfulness of Your prophet Jeremiah. The example that he is for us as well as the picture that he is of Christ. Christ who was the prophet who was rejected by man. But through His rejection, You gave man life. God, I thank You for the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. God, I pray that everyone in this room would cling to the cross, would know Jesus, would stand with Jesus, and know that in that place of standing with Jesus, that You are standing with us, no matter what. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.